Unlock more to life with Adrian Pinozo, real estate investing podcast, where we broadcast interviews with successful real estate investors across North America to empower you on your journey to unlocking more to life with real estate investing. Now, now, here's your host, Adrian Pinozo. So, hey, everyone, it's Adrian Pinozo here with the More to Life Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we want to help you get more to life so you can start living your dreams through the power of real estate investing, somewhat like I've done. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited. Today's podcast, we welcome Steve Sims. Steve is the founder and CEO of Bluefish which is a luxury concierge service that provides VIP access to a more attractive lifestyle and building dream experiences. Before Steve's success, I'll have you know, he went through many jobs. In 1980, this gentleman here began working as a stockbroker in London, where he stayed for around six months, give or take, and eventually was sent to Hong Kong, where he was fired only five days later. Steve ultimately remained in Hong Kong and worked as a doorman for a local nightclub where he attended parties and met people who would later sponsor Bluefish. Since then, Steve has met and befriended many, many vital people, including Donald Trump, Sting, Andrea Bocelli, and Elon Musk. In 2016, Steve's book, Bluefish, The Art of Making Things Happen, was published. His most recent product is a taste of blue, which makes it easier to get unique and luxurious experiences. If that's not it, I'm going to keep going. Here we go. Steve has also appeared in 30 television shows, featured in over 60 magazines. His company, Bluefish, has also featured in Forbes, The New York Times, Entrepreneur, Variety, Worth, and CNBC. On top of that, Steve was given the blessing to speak in Harvard and the Pentagon, not once, but twice. Ladies and gentlemen, after all that, my honor, my privilege to welcome Steve D. Sims. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. I, I've got to live up to that. I wish you'd have kind of like let the bar a little bit lower. So people are going to be expecting something really strong now. Yeah, no doubt. But hey, congratulations on all your success. You're obviously done a hell of a lot. And uh, I, again, I, I reiterate, it's my pleasure to have you on our podcast and um, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. I got a, a, a jammed pack questions for you that I think would resonate with everybody there. Um, do you want to maybe just start with a quick little rendition of all these accolades I just talked about, like where you came from, where you are, and how you got there? It's, it's, look, it's, it's not interesting. It's the same as every other entrepreneur. Um, most entrepreneurs grow up pissed off. Um, we're aggravated. We want to do something better. We can't understand why things are done that way. I was a bricklayer from East London, and I had no money. And my granddad was on the website, uh, on the building site. And so I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. I'm on the building site. He's on the building site. Not only have I got no money, I've got no future. How can that be right? So I was aggravated. And I went off and I tried doing a ton of jobs, which I was ill-qualified for. 
I've got fired so many times. I've become an expert at it. Um, I could read someone's body language as they were walking me thinking, oh, shit, I'm out. And it was like everybody else. I wanted better. And eventually I found it by just being able to give what people wanted. And as a big, ugly fellow on the door of a nightclub, I knew where all the parties were. So I became the the, the oracle, the Google of that time that right. knew where all the events were. I'm not a party player. I don't care about red carpets. I'm not the warm and fuzzy, the kind of guy you want to, you know, just like bump into and go, oh, hello. I'm not that bloke. But I realized if I could satisfy your problem, I had your attention. Right. And so satisfying what you wanted and rich people – they want a good cocktail story. They want to rub shoulders with Larry Page, Elon Musk. They want to be able to tell stories of how they climbed Michipucho or they went down to see the Titanic or they walked the white carpet or so out on John's Oscar. They just want to tell stories. So if I could satisfy that urge, then I could speak to some of the most powerful people in the planet and go, hey, how do you look at opportunity? How do you look at investments? How do you connect with... Quite simply, I was doing this in the late 90s and the early 2000s pre-podcast. Now, if you think about it, if I was around today, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would have launched that business because all I wanted to do was interview rich, powerful people to find out why you're rich and I'm not. That was the whole purpose. So I built a company that was quite simply a Trojan horse that got you what you needed so I got the attention of you and the conversation for an hour just to go, hey, you know, how did you get your first recording contract? How did you put up with people saying no to you? How did you do I interviewed some of the Mitch's most powerful people in the planet. And as you say, then I, then I wrote a book, which quite simply I didn't expect to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, that one's going to buy this. Um, and it's become translated, um, I think it's like about seven or eight different languages. It got released. In Russia, um, latter part of last year, um, it's just been crazy. So now I literally, I train, I teach, and I coach all over the planet on how to really go for, go for stupid, go for the extreme, rather than what you feel is achievable. And that's my new chapter. Go for the extreme rather than what you feel is achievable. Amazing. Let's be blunt. If, if I said, if you're, if you're doing a three-minute mile, you know, now obviously that's bloody fast. You know, you're going to go for like a, a, a two minute, 46 second mile. You know, you're going to try and just extend it just a little bit of a little bit. But if someone to turn around and said, hey, go for a one second mile, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. Right. And the worst thing, that's impossible. You know, you don't know it's possible until you've at least attempted it. How do you know what's possible? You don't know if you can fight above your weight category. You don't know if you could close a... $20 billion deal just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you can't do it just means you haven't been in a position to attempt to do it and you'll probably fail most people fail I fail a ton but then I've got to admit some of my my greatest people I know are serial failures Elon Musk is a serial failure Richard Branson a serial failure Steve Jobs a serial failure all of these people failed and failed and failed, and you can fail a million times. You've only got to get it right once, mm -hmm. and people applaud. That's all that matters. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time, that's education. It ain't failing. It's education. 
Amazing. Amazing. So you've been called many things in this world and online, but including the real life wizard of Oz, the world party coordinator, man with the coolest job. How would you best describe yourself to people who are new in this space as far as you being the real life wizard of Oz? I tell people I'm an arsehole that just tries stuff. Um, you see, the trouble is, it's very easy to get caught up in all that crap. And I remember I was supposed to be in a little segment, you know, like a, a, a mention in a paragraph in Forbes. And, you know, they were like, oh, we're doing this travel thing. We're going to expose the most connected people in the planet. You know, can we talk about you and the kind of things you do? And I, yeah, yeah. And like all media, you end up talking to someone for like, you know, an hour and then they take like one sentence, which is usually bloody taken out of context, and they shove that in the article. So I knew I was going to have a mention in Forbes, but then I got told, hey, we really liked that interview. We're going to change things a bit, which you never want to hear. Because, mm-hmm. you know, what? once you've done an interview, you're out of control how they spin it. The next thing I know, they wrote an eight-page article on me. And it's got me with Elon Musk and Richard Branson and all these, you know, big hitters. And I'm like, shit, before that, the people in the new in the know knew who I was. You know, the real right. power players, you know, I could walk into a party in Monaco and a good handful of people would know who I was, or Stard or Macau. You know, I had that reputation. But you know, I'd walk into a I don't know, a, a, an entrepreneur event in London, no one knew who I was. Uh, and that was fine. The article came out, and it threw me in the limelight. And worse, they actually turned around and called me the real-life Wizard of Oz. And I was in bed, and a buddy of mine contacted me, and he's like, hey, Wizard. And I was like, what the hell is that? You know, I've never been called Wizard before. You know, what, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? And he went, oh, you know, how do you feel about that? I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And he said, well, Forbes just released an article on you and called you the real-life Wizard of Oz. So I scrambled up, looked online, found it, saw the article and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, my God, everything's going to go wrong. Because if you think about it, the Wizard of Oz was a fraud. He was a guy that hid behind the curtain and didn't actually do anything. And I just thought to myself, shit, Forbes have just called me a fraud. And no one picked up on that. Everyone was like, oh, no, you're the, the real You're supposed to be what the wizard was supposed to be like. You know, you're him. And it just took off. And I had, I had. <clears throat> from that article, entrepreneur and just, you know, 20, 30 other articles just came at me going, hey, we want to do an expose on you. And it just took off. And so it's kind of weird that you have that moniker. But as I've always said, we own a, we own a media company, me and my son called Sims Media. Mm-hmm. And we've always said, getting media is one thing. What you do with it is everything. And as much as the media can spin you and can, uh, you know, take you out of context, you can do the same. You know, you have the ability to market that out. But that article was so good and it took off so well. You know, I think it's still on the signature of my um, my emails. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Talking about um, mindset and a lot of people have all this energy in education and, and got to go and get master's degrees and this and this and that. From my understanding, you dropped into school at the age of 15. 
tell us about that and and um, back to building your knowledge, getting fired at jobs, no education, this, that, the other. How does that mindset, uh, how did you make something out of nothing after getting dropping out at 15 years old? So there's a couple of things, and I want to kind of just um, attack your, your question a bit mm-hmm. uh, or your position. Um, mm-hmm. You said lack of education. I've always been a great believer that um, I'm heavily educated, but school had nothing to do with it. You Bingo. see, in school, we're told you're right when you comply with our opinion. You know, Elon Musk would have been kicked out of every class because he didn't comply. He had a different way. Entrepreneurs, <clears throat> we don't answer the question. We answer the cause. We go, well, why does it have to be done that way? Surely there's an easier way, a quicker way, a smoother way. You know, as entrepreneurs, we challenge convention. We challenge the norm. Yet schools don't. Schools go, this is what you do. You complete this. You do that. And this is what happens. And if you tick the right box and you tell me what I want to hear, I'll give you an A. Well, schools are really, really good at at building employees. But entrepreneurs are not employees. Entrepreneurs are dysfunctional misfits that go out and create their own direction. So as I was growing up, I was trying a lot of things and failing. Now, experience comes from the education of doing something wrong. That's how it works. So every time I did something wrong, and you're you're in real estate, Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you you've not got it right every single time. I can guarantee you there's been a contract that maybe you haven't paid attention to. It's bit you in the ass. And then all of a sudden, the next contract you get, you pay attention to it. Why? Because that's how experience happens. So I didn't have school education, but I also was stupid. And as my wife says, ignorant. Now, when your wife calls you ignorant, you're kind of a bit worried about how the relationship's going to go. But in her terminology, I was ignorant to the fact that I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. You know, how many times I've done things and people have gone, how the bloody hell? And I don't know how I've done it, but I've tried. You know, we just launched an NFT line, did really well out of it. And someone said to me, oh, you know, you're an expert in NFTs. And I'm like, no, I tried something. You know, I don't have to be an expert in something to try it. When you try something and fail, that's when you start getting your knowledge. So I came out of school with no education, but I had a lot of ignorance. And I also had a lot of frustration that, why can't I? Mm -hmm. And here's the tough thing. And you can try this. And anyone listening to this can try this. If you say to someone, hey, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? They're probably quickly going to say something like, oh, walk on Mars or play piano with Sir Elton John or, you know, um, you know, fly a private jet. Their response will be quick. And if you shut up, the next thing they will do is spend the next 50 seconds or two minutes telling you why that can't be done. Oh, I'd like to play piano with Elton John. Ah, but he doesn't know me. I wouldn't know how to get a hold of it. I can't even play piano. They'll talk themselves out of it. As human beings, we have an inept ability of talking ourselves out of what we really want to do. Mm-hmm. And so with me, I didn't have that second bit. I want to get a couple married in the Vatican by the Pope. I want to close a museum in Florence 
and have a dinner party at the feet of Michelangelo's David and then have Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade them. I want to play drums with Guns N' Roses. I want to sing on stage with the rock band Journey live in concert. I want to hang out with... I've done all those things. Why? Because I didn't allow someone else's opinion or worse, my self-doubt to stop me from trying. And I've tried to get... I've tried to get powerful people to be my clients and they've hung up on me, walked out of meetings. But you know, I looked at that meeting and I'd go, okay, where did I lose that person? If I'm in a meeting with a very, very powerful person and they walk out of the meeting, did I fail or did I lose it somewhere within that meeting? Because I'm already in the room. I've already got the attention of the powerful person. I've already taken time out of that day to be with me. So all of those things are wins. All of those things are successes. Where did I lose it? And so if you can analyze where you lost it, the next time you're in a room with that powerful person, you correct and tweak that element. And all of a sudden they end up staying for the meeting. Now they still may say no. And if they say no, where did I lose it? Because I was on a winning streak and then I, once you've done that and found that element, then you don't lose. I remember um, Elon Musk. Do you remember um, he worked out that the most expensive thing about space travel was actually the fuel cells. And he worked out, hey, if I can get them back and fuel them up again, I've saved you know, like, you know, a third of the price. And when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a big price tag to save. So what have I got to do? Well, the problem is I've got to get them from up there to down here. All right, now I know what I've got to solve. So he started working out how to get those fuel cells to land on those floating platforms in the ocean. Do you remember seeing that on TV? Yeah, yeah. And what would happen? It would land and it would wiggle and it would wobble and it would fall over and it would explode in the flames, wouldn't it? Every time it failed, it failed at one element. It had already gone from way up there to like a, a 40 foot by 40 foot dot in the ocean. So that's quite a success, all right? But it fell over. So once they worked out what to correct, it never fell over. When was the last time you saw on TV that fuel cell fall over and explode in the flames? Do you know why it's been so long? No. Because it doesn't fall over anymore. Right. They got it right. They See, everyone's right. going to point and go, oh, fucking hell, it's, he's just lost $400 billion on that. Oh, what? it fell over. It failed. No, it didn't. It gave him the education he needed to make sure. As soon as it worked, people stopped videoing it. He's been up in space tons of times now, and you don't see it because it lands. He got it right. Not from success. He got it right from working on the education he got and where it went wrong. Bingo. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about um, you get hired as a doorman and it sparked the networking interest and ultimately sparked Bluefish. Tell us about Bluefish. Obviously, uh, like, how did that all come about and where is it now from where it was and how did, like, how did that all happen with Bluefish? So I work, I work with purpose. I've always been um, a very simple morsel to understand you know if it doesn't move the needle what's the point in fact joking aside i constantly train my people in my speakeasies and in my coaching program 
to first, first of all address what's the point. If you want 2 million followers on Instagram, what's the point? You know, if you want a you know, massive office, you know, what's the point? I question what's the point on absolutely everything. I didn't want to be in a room full of poor people because I was poor. I knew what being poor was like, and it stinks. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in a room full of rich people. So I started throwing private parties and only inviting rich people. And one of the filters was that I would charge $1,000 to go to my party. Okay? $1,000. Would you pay $1,000 to go to a party where you knew nothing about it? And I'm no. guessing probably no. Okay? No. No. But the first thing you notice about powerful billionaires is that they take risks, okay? They're inquisitive. They're always expanding. To them, $1,000 is 10 bucks to us, you know? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I had a party, and my first party, I only had like about 12 people. So I threw a dinner party, okay? Mm -hmm. And I made it a bit fun. You know, halfway through the dinner party, I got a marching band to come in. And people are like, what the hell is this? You know, I just made it a bit interesting. And then what did they do? They told their friends. The next time I threw a party, I had 30 people coming, you know? And so it grew. But I only ever allowed super rich to people in there. I was heavily filtering the people in that room. And one of the ways that I did it was also I wanted to know that I was dealing with the right people. Now, here's a very, very important Probably the most important point of this podcast. As a doorman, I had to control who went through my front door. That was my job. My job's not to smack someone on the dance floor. No one likes to do that. That was just an effect I had to do if I got my door policy wrong. Mm -hmm. The point was, I had to make sure that everyone that came through the right front door was the right kind of person for the room inside. Today, people don't do that. Today, people accept people's checkbooks before they accept the relationship. Ask yourself, how many of you out there have clients you really don't want to deal with? Oh, but they give you a lot of money. Fuck that. Get another client that you do like. So I controlled my front door. And I knew that if I got someone in through the front door that maybe had had a couple of beers, it was only a matter of 20 minutes before I'm dancing on the floor with him. You know? So... As I started building up my clubs, I also wanted people to be humble and open for a giggle. So what I used to do was I used to tell people, here's the payment. I used to use PayPal all the time then. Mm -hmm. you know, Here's the PayPal link for the party next Friday night. On the Thursday night, I'll tell you where it is. So it was all shrouded in secrecy. The reason it was shrouded in secrecy was because I didn't know how many people I needed to book a room for. If I had 20 people, I'd get a room that could fit 25. If suddenly I sold 50 tickets, I'd get a bigger place. So I was always edging my bets on the room size I needed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I was doing it. People just thought, oh, it's secret. It's, it wasn't secret and, and secretive. I was just trying to plan in advance what I needed to cater for, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that. And then I added an element which was just a joke, but really worked out to be brilliant. I gave people a password. I said, hey, the party, I'll tell you where it is on the Thursday night, and I'll give you the password to get in. People love passwords. So on the Thursday night, I would tell you where the party's going to be, and I'll give you the password. And the password would be things like, 
you have to name two of the Teletubbies. Or you need to name, and this one, this one got a lot of people. You need to name the lion out of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And then the third one we used to finish is finish this sentence one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. So people would literally line up to get into this party and they'd walk up to us on the door and they would go, Bluefish. We were like, Indigo, mate. So if you were humble and open for this kind of thing to actually quote a silly thing, and that was the whole point make the passwords silly, you know? Mm-hmm. Naming two of the Teletubbies, Tinky Winky Poe. You know, just saying something silly meant that you were confident enough to have a giggle. Now, if you had to walk up to a club and you had to confront a big, ugly doorman like me and my buddy and look at us in the eye and go, Tinky Winky Poe, look at your face now. You're smiling, aren't you? Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) It is funny. Yeah. Think about it. Think about it. You are then going to walk past us through the front door with a smile on your face. You imagine if everyone that walks through that door to get into the party behind me is smiling, what does everyone else do in the room? Smiling back. Exactly. We would get, I remember this one time when I was in Hong Kong, this guy got, we had a yacht party. And of course our parties got bigger and bigger. We we took over mansions, penthouses. We had this fucking great yacht. Okay. And I remember this yacht had three elevators in it. And I was like, I'm on a yacht that's got three elevators. Who the hell's got elevators on a boat? I was over the moon at the time. Mm -hmm. So we took over this yacht. This was not a small yacht. This was huge. And all the people were starting to line up to walk up the gangplank to get onto the yacht. So you could see the yacht. You could hear the music. You could see the lights. You could hear people singing and dancing and drinking. And people walking up to us and they were going, bluefish. Oh, in you go. You know, and they'll be like, hey, walk up the gang. Hey, how are you? And they'll be having a great time. This guy walks up to us, Australian guy with his girlfriend. And he's like, I'm here for the party. And I went, sorry? He went, I'm here for the party. And push, and you know, points to the yacht exploding behind us with all the activity. And I looked at my buddy and I went, I don't know if there's a party tonight. Is there a party tonight? And my mate's like, no, I don't think there is, mate. He said, I think there's one down the road. And I went, are you in the wrong place? I don't think there's a party here, mate. He's like, I can see the party. I don't see a party. Colin, do you see a party? No, I don't see it. And we just blanked the guy, okay? He was getting more and more and more wound up. And in the end, stormed off with his girlfriend. The rest of the line behind us, the next guy walked up and went, bluefish. We went, oh, in you go. (laughs) The entire line started laughing started hysterically laughing. All the guy had to do was to be humble enough to say bluefish and not to be a smarmy, cocky little shit, and he would have got in the party. But he didn't have that trait. He actually reported me, mm-hmm. and he actually got a connection of his in the newspaper in Hong Kong to write a scathing article about how I had humiliated him and not allowed him into the party. And the only way people could get into the party was to say a childish little um, a password to get onto this yacht. What do you think that did for me? I had a ton yeah. of people coming to me going, that's the kind of party I want to be in. You know? Yeah. I was turning, people were buying tickets, and I was having to go, hey, hey you've bought tickets. And they were like, 
I, I, I've maxed out, you know, and I was throwing parties for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I was overselling and they were like, no, 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 keep my money. Just make sure I'm on the next list. And I wow. was overselling the next party that we hadn't even done. It was just ridiculous. So if you guard your front door, you remove 99% of the problems you're going to have on the inside. Wow. Are you still throwing these bluefish parties? <laughs> well, bluefish, uh, bluefish, I kind of, uh, thank you very much for the intro earlier, but bluefish, um, I kind of moved away shortly after writing the book, Bluefishing, because uh, it took me in a different path. So I haven't been doing that um, for the concierge clients. I don't run the concierge firm anymore at all now. Um, and as I say, I just coach and train through, you know, stevedcs.com. But I still do big events for my speakeasy community. So now what I do is I do these private events for like maximum of 40 people. And we've done them in recording studios. We've done them in, um, you know, Silicon Valley companies. We did it on the rooftop of Louis Vuitton in Beverly Hills. So we still do really good. I just enjoy doing it. I think I enjoy surprising people. So I think they come to me and they go, what are we going to get up to? And then the next minute they're in the Giga factory in Reno and the next minute they're on the, the rooftop of Louis Vuitton. So I still do them, but for a different community and a different entrepreneurial crowd now. Mm. Awesome. Networking and relationships. So Steve, your line of work primarily deals with obviously knowing people and being able to contact the right people to get your clients' needs handled, so on and so forth. How did you start developing your relationships uh, when you were 21 years old compared to you are now? And how valuable is it to expand and curate your network? So you're nothing without your, your communication and your relationships. You're absolutely nothing. Because like we've just gone through COVID, okay? How many friends, friends mm -hmm. reached out to you through COVID to find out how you are? I'm imagining quite a few. Mm -hmm. How many calls did you get from your bank? Zero. <laughs> you see, we've got to focus on our relationships today. When you fall over, when you're in trouble, when you need help, no one's going to help you outside of that relationship. And you don't have relationships with people that are transactions. Okay? No one has a relationship with Amazon. You know, you just get the shit that you purchase. Great. There you go. But no one has a relationship. So I realized very early on, the relationships carried clout. You know, relationships open doors. So I focused on relationships. And with a relationship, from very early on, I realized that you had to be selfish. Okay? And I'm a great believer in being selfish. And here's the funny thing. If I, if I say to people, and I do this all the time, I'll walk into a room and I'll say, Adrian, are you selfish? And you'll probably sit there and go, no, I'm not selfish. And I'll say to the room, how many of you in here are selfish? And no one to put their hand up, okay? Because we've been taught from a really young age that being selfish is a bad thing. You know, share your sweets. Oh, don't be nasty. Mm -hmm. You know, share, don't be selfish. Mm -hmm. We're taught from a very early age it's a bad thing. But when you get on a plane, when was the last time you heard the steward turn around and go, hey, in the case of an emergency, an oxygen mask is going to fall down. When was the last time you heard him say, hey, stick that oxygen mask on someone else. Don't be selfish. You've never heard it, have you? They no. say, stick it on yourself first and then look after the person next to you. If you're weak, you can't help someone else. So you've got to focus on yourself. So here's the point. 
Whenever you meet someone, do two things. First of all, ask yourself, how does this relationship benefit me? Do I get financial gain out of it? Do I get growth? Does it make me smile? Does it challenge me? It could be any of those things. It can be a combination of those things. I've got very, very powerful, influential clients that can help me with my business models to make me a lot of money. And then I've got other mates that, that can't even afford the bar tab, yet they challenge me and make me smile. Mm-hmm. So does the relationship benefit you? First, does it benefit you? Now, the second question is, if I'm the person that I'm trying to get into a relationship with, how do I benefit them? Okay? Mm-hmm. And it's got to be there. I'm going to play a little game with you, Adrian, because I know you like games. Mm-hmm. All right, so here you go. I'm having, hypothetically, I'm having a barbecue party on Saturday night, and you happen to be in Los Angeles this Saturday night. And I say, hey, Adrian, do you want to come to my barbecue party? And you say, yeah. What's the first question you ask me? What can I bring? Who's going to be there? The second question benefited your curiosity, but what did the first question benefit? It benefited me, didn't it? Mm -hmm. You see a lot of people, and that's just... You couldn't get more primitive than that test, okay? But I urge you, play that game with people you know, and a lot of people will go things like, oh, um, what time does it start? Who's going to be there? What should I wear? And then the fifth, sixth, or seventh thing will be, oh, what can I bring? Mm -hmm. Every single relationship should be viewed as a barbecue party. What can I bring to the party? What can I bring to the table? Now, it may be, Hey, I've got a podcast. I can get your message out to my, my, my viewers and my subscribers. Would that benefit you? That's an asset. Hey, I see you're working on a business. I have experience in that. Can I help you? You know, what can you bring to the relationship that makes it beneficial for them? You already know what you want. You've got to focus on what works for them. Every person that I ever worked with, I never went up going, hey, I know you're involved in something, so it'd really help me if you looked at something. No. I brought something to your party first, and then I came back to me. Because by the time you come back to me, I've already proved myself as an asset to you. So I'm a big one on relationships, on being selfish, and asking yourself, what can you bring to the party for the other person? I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. No, and that's the problem. People overthink. You know, a a good friend of mine, Jay Abraham, says, I've never overthought anything. He says, you know, I've got a greater I can than an IQ. Stop thinking and start doing. This shit is not hard. It's not complicated. If I could work with the Vatican and Elon Musk, you're already out of excuses. (laughs) It ain't difficult, but you've got to start. Bingo. So what if someone is generating leads, meeting new people, interacting with existing friends? We all use online tools to communicate. Your job is communicating, obviously, every single day. Is there a best way to communicate in your eyes, social media, text, email, whatever? What's the best form of getting in front of somebody and communicate? All right. So first of all, there's two answers to that. Okay, the best platform is the one that the person's consuming. 
Okay. Mm. If you've got a if you've got a sales team and you say to your sales team, hey, let's get it, let's have a meeting tomorrow at nine o'clock, watch the news tonight, and we're gonna talk about the news tomorrow at nine o'clock in the morning. When you have your meeting at nine o'clock in the morning, you're gonna talk about the same subjects that were revealed in the news that night before. Okay. And everyone's gonna talk about the same thing: politics, COVID inflation, you know, whatever. It'll be the same topics that were discussed on the news station the night before. But then if you say to people, hey, where did you get your news? They're going to go, oh, ABC, NBC, CNBC. Those are all different platforms. Same headlines, but different platforms. You see what I do whenever I spout a message onto Instagram, I post the exact same message onto Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, Facebook. I put the same message. The message doesn't change, but the the medium platform does because I've got people to speak to me on Twitter hate Facebook. I've got people to speak to me on Facebook hate LinkedIn. I've got people on LinkedIn that hate TikTok. Mm-hmm. Why should I ignore anyone? So first of all, stop looking at the platform. Focus on your message and replicate that message on all platforms. The second thing is we have a low span of attention today. We also are very uh, frustrated and we're in a gotcha society. You want to listen to something I say and twist it to make me look like an arsehole. It ain't going to be too hard. I am an arsehole. (laughs) But you want to look at what I've got and find a way that you can take it out of context and trip me up and go, oh, look at this. He said this, yeah, and do that. If you write something, then it carries no tonality. If I write something, then how it's received is more important than how it's sent. If you've had a bad day tonight, and I say to you, Adrian, uh, and I send you a text, and the text says, Adrian, beer tonight, 8 p.m., be there. If you've had a bad day, you're going to look at that and go, bossy little shit. Why should I jump to his demands? You know, why should I care what he says? No, no, no. I'm not going to go out with him and you'll ignore it. But if I sent you a video going, Adrian, be here tonight, 8 p.m., be there. Now I've got tonality in there. Exact same content. But now it's harder for you to ignore my enthusiasm, my, my, my interest, my excitement about having a beer with you. So the first thing to do is whatever you put out there, put it on all platforms. The second thing is brevity is king. Don't confuse and always focus on extreme clarity. And the best way of doing that today is video. Do video all the time for a few reasons. One, it's the only medium that carries complete tonality and expression. There's no other platform that does that. Audio just gives you audio, text, text. You know, video is the only one that carries all of your content. The only thing you're missing now is the smell, but you're getting everything else about me, okay? It's hard for you to misunderstand my emotions when I'm conveying it in a video. So I'm a great believer in video, And I'm a great believer on every platform. And the best platform is the one that you're having a conversation on. Beautiful. 
Couldn't agree more. Obviously, you know, we, we talked quickly about my past, Steve, and um, where I came from and what I'm doing and so on and so forth. And I deal with a lot of nervous, hesitant um, people who kick tires all day long and are afraid to fail and are anxious and nervous. And, oh, my God, I got to buy rental properties and I'm going to lose my shirt and I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. And you kind of touched upon it at the beginning of the interview when you, you went around and we talked, you, you mentioned, you know, the whole failure and the mindset behind that and, and so on and so forth and how Elon Musk is a legendary failure uh, yeah. or, or, or whatnot. So question is, how can I get through to those people that I'm trying to, who are out there listening and some of them are probably going to be listening to this podcast thinking that's me. I'm kicking tires or I'm, you know, analysis paralysis for the last four years and I still haven't bought my first rental property. How do they get over that mindset? What's your advice to them to push forward and do it and, and fail with a smile, sort of speak? What, what are your comments on that? So the funny thing is I, I posted that exact answer on my Instagram page yesterday. Okay. I posted on there. Uh, I'm stunned at how much effort is used to ignore, avoid doing what you know must be done. I saw that actually before we got on this podcast. Yeah, I posted it up there. The The way that you handle it is that everyone in the planet is fear-based, okay? Um, we respond to fear. You walk down the road, uh, the hedge rustles, and you, you're alert, you're alarmed, okay? So we all respond to fear, but how we respond to fear, that's what you've got to focus on. Okay, we know we're all scared of things. I'm scared of things. You know, I've done um, amateur MMA, kickboxing, uh, uh, Muay Thai. I race motorcycles now. Scares the shit out of me. Okay, but here's my thing. Fear has two responses. It can make you stop, which will create you to become stagnant, stink, and die. Or it can challenge you to move. Even if it's a move to run out the fear or to run away, but it can create movement. Now, the way that I handle fear, and you mentioned, oh, I don't know if I'll get involved in this project. I'm really scared. I don't know what's going to happen. I could lose my shirt. Sure, shit, you could. But that's where the education comes from. But here's my question. I'm terrified of being the same person today as I am in six months' time. I'm, I'm, I'm petrified that that will be the case. I live very well. I'm very happy, but I don't want to be the same person. I want to try something and fail. I want to try something and grow. I want to become more educated. I constantly want to push myself, and I'm going to get scrapes and scars, and I'm going to fall off, but hey, that's what life is, okay? But my fear pushes me to actually react, to be scared of being in the exact same place. Imagine while you're sitting there going, oh, I don't want to do this project today. I could lose my shirt. Imagine if you were in the exact same position 12 months from now. No gain on education, finances, comfort, none of that. Exact waste of a year. Waste of a year. And we don't have any time to waste. So that's how I focus on challenging myself. When I get scared, I go, what's going to be more dangerous? Me not doing this or me not trying it? Amazing. And I think 
taking that step and taking that challenge and embarking and fucking doing that fear, entrepreneurs can make their dreams come true, right? Because they won't be the same person six months from now or 12 months from now or eight months from now. They're either going to fail or they're going to hit it out of the park. And if they fail, Steve, correct me, if they fail, it's just one step closer the next time to being successful. You're educated. You're educated. I did a contract with a company and I thought I was going to make a quarter of a million dollars. And I did. I, I made a quarter of a million dollars off of one contract and I was ecstatic. I thought another few of those and I'm retiring on the beach, you know, and I did this contract. And then when the event finished, there was stuff in the contract that I hadn't paid attention to. And it ended up costing me $350,000. I lost $100,000. I paid a hundred grand for my own fucking contract because I hadn't paid attention to the small print of what I could promote, what I could get involved in, what I could talk about. And there were clauses in there that if I mentioned this, there was an automatic payment due. And I'd signed a freaking thing. I couldn't even complain about it. They had caught me beautifully. Mm. Now, that pissed me off. I felt very, very, very violent. And then I got another contract. And this time it was with a very large organization, very famous person. And I looked through that contract to see if that clause was still in there. Do you know? It was. So I went to them and I went, I like the contract, but this clause has to be removed. And they went, okay. And they struck it from the contract. Mm. And then I ended up staying with that group for eight years. So the bottom line of it is the first contract was basically an MBA in how to look at contracts. And I'd paid for an MBA in how to, how to do contracts well. And so then I, I profited from it. You know, first contract, I kind of like, you know, did well, paid off the other, you know, outstanding debt of the first one that screwed me over. And then it just took me off. So every time I fall over, I go, okay, where did that go wrong? And I become educated. Bingo. So you're very successful now, Steve, and we say that relative to how the world views success. Do you think there is more to life for Steve Sims? Oh, I'm just getting started. Um, (laughs) You know, I launched an NFT last week. Never done an NFT in my life. And everyone's like, what do you know about NFTs? And I was like, fuck all, but I know people that do. And why should that stop me from trying? So we've got another book coming out in a year's time. We're doing more speakeasy events. We launched, as I say, Sims Media. Why should I stop? And you said earlier, and I'm really pleased the way you said it, I'm very successful based on how the world sees it. I don't care how the world sees it. For me, success is accepting and rising to the challenge. I love being challenged. I love it when I work with a client and they do well. I love it when I can get a client and rattle them into the world of being uncomfortable that they come out to dominate. You know, I'm I'm not sitting back. I I got way too much to play with. Amazing. So, Steve, when you look at more to life, when you picture more to life for Steve Sims, what do you see? What's more to life for Steve? I remember a friend of mine, probably the best way to put it, is to quote a friend of mine, Joe Polish. 
And he said to me, the definition of hell is to meet the man or woman that you could have been. Wow. And I don't want to ever be that person. I don't ever want to meet me that didn't take the chance. Okay. Or I want to meet them and go, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But I want to be the person that, that dies because it's all going to happen. And my vision, you know, I'm giving you, I'm really giving you my, I've thought about this for many, many years. I want to die. I want to go up to the pearly gates if they let me in. And I want St. Peter to be there with an old fashioned in his hand. Give me the old fashioned and then go, well, you had some fun, didn't you? That's what I want. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Very, very last thing before we let you go, Steve. We've been just about 50 minutes now. That's like the energy, the energy coming off of you is, is incredible and I love it. So parting last question. One piece of advice to anybody out there listening. One, one piece of advice. What would that be? I'm going to quote my dad. I was a little kid and my dad's walking through London and he's a big, thick um, Irish bricklayer. And as he's walking through, he puts his hand on my shoulder. Didn't even look at me. Just puts his hand on my shoulder as we're walking through. And he says, son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. Took his hand off my shoulder, just carrying on walking. I remember at the age of 13, I was like, the fuck's that? Thinking it just got consumed by a fortune cookie or something. <laughs> And it just, it, it, it shocked me, but didn't stick with me. And then as I grew up, I was like, gotcha, dad. I gotcha. So that's what I would end with. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. Steve, it's been a pleasure, honest to God, having you here. Uh, words of wisdom, the energy, everything about you is, is I'm speechless. Probably one of the best, uh, best interviews podcast we've held thus far so everybody out there if you want to get in touch with steve he's all over social media um instagram handle at steve d sims uh his website www.stevedsims.com um obviously linkedin all the other platforms that you're on steve very easy person to find it's been an absolute pleasure I highly encourage everyone to reach out to Steve if they're looking for some help as well. That like the energy on this man is incredible. And the advice I think personally is incredible as well. So Steve, that's it for us. Thanks again. I definitely will be in touch. I wish you all the best. And uh, yeah, thanks. Ed. I, I, I'm, thanks again, man. Awesome. See you later. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.